more deeply at genes that are, how new genes appear and how genes are lost. And that time frame was in the terms of millions of years. Today we're going to be going, and in the next lectures, we're taking a giant jump back in time. We're going to go five, six hundred million years back and see what DNA can tell us. And so this is really the start of what I call the EvoDevo, or evolution and development section of the course. So what I want to begin by doing is to give you a sense of the scale of, of, of the, the problem that we're talking about here. And that's really to tell you about sort of the, the origins of uh, life on Earth and how we go back in time to look at that. And I want to give you a sense of scale for this analysis. Best estimates are that the Earth formed about four and a half billion years ago. And when it first formed, it would have been much too hot for life to exist. So there wouldn't have been liquid water, for example, in the first years, that the, uh, the first few hundred million years uh, that the Earth had formed. About three and a half billion years, we have evidence of these things. These are stromatolites, and they're found in uh, present-day Australia, and they represent colonies of prokaryotic organisms, so things like bacteria and archaea. About 2.1 billion years ago, we get the first fossil evidence of eukaryotic life. And these would have been single-celled organisms, and they persisted around until about 1.2 billion years ago when we have the rise of multicellular life. The multicellular life that formed would have been very simple by today's standards. So you'd be thinking about corals and sponges, that sort of thing. About 600 to 500 million years ago, something happened and the pace of change and the complexity of life increased greatly until we hit the Cambrian period. And during the Cambrian period, you have what's been called the Cambrian explosion, but it's really the formation of all the modern phyla of animals. So all the modern phyla that are, exist today had their origins back about 545 million years ago but we're actually going to look at what happened before the Cambrian explosion. So this is a phylogenetic tree, uh, much like the ones I showed you before. And what you can see here is the Cambrian era here is between these lines. And what you see here is that basically most of the branching within all these modern phyla, so these are all the modern animal phyla, they all originate, by the time you exit the Cambrian at this point here, all these phyla are intact. And that descendants of these will, will give rise to the modern day animals that we have today. Okay? And that many of these phyla, these different groups, so vertebrae here, uh, insecta here, and we have crustaceans there. Um, these are further out, so sponges and cnidaria, which are corals. Um, but we see that the bulk of these happened during the Cambrian or just before the Cambrian explosion. And the question that we're going to ask today is to, to, to find out what this creature here looked like. 
And this creature, which has been called Urbilateria, is the last common ancestor of all of these groups. Okay, we don't have any fossil record of what this creature looked like. Okay, it would have been pre-Cambrian, perhaps 600 million years ago. But what I want to try and do today is to answer the question, what did this creature look like? The creature that gave rise, the last common ancestor, to both protostomes and deuterostomes. I'll just give you a definition of protostomes and deuterostomes. Um, protostomes are things like insects, and the deuterostomes are things like uh, vertebrates, echinoderms, tunicates. And just to give you the definition, it's a pro protostome versus deuterostome is basically how they develop. It has to do with their developmental program. And there are a number of differences between them, but one of the main differences is that um, during development, there's um, a portion of, of, of the cells start to internalize, and they do that at the blastopore lip. So cells start to migrate inside, um, into the embryo, inside the embryo. And where they start to make that migration is called the blastopore. And in protostomes, the blastopore is what ends up giving rise to the mouth. And in deuterostomes, things like us, the blastopore is the site where the anus is going to be. So the question I want to ask is, what did herbilateria look like? And what can the present time, what can we infer about what that organism must have looked like? And that's what I'm going to try and develop over the next little while. The basic premise behind evo-devo, or evolution and development, is that if there's a trait and it's shared by two organisms, then the most likely explanation is that, that the common ancestor of those organisms also shared that trait. So rather than having a trait uh, develop independently two times, the most likely scenario is that a common ancestor of both those organisms had that trait, passed it down to its descendants. And what we're going to do is essentially the same type of technique that we use to track human origins. We can't go back in time in terms of looking at genetic samples from things that lived in the Cambrian, or even dinosaurs for that matter. So how do we get at this problem? Just like with that human, tracing human ancestry, although we don't have all the branch points, we have all the modern-day examples of all of these organisms. So if we look at the genetic material within those organisms today, we can infer what's happening as we go back in time. So first characteristic I'll just point out, it's a morphological characteristic. And the characteristic is that both protostomes and deuterostomes are bilaterally symmetrical, which means you can draw a line down them somewhere, a line of symmetry, and one half is roughly equivalent to the other half of the organism. So protostomes and deuterostomes are bilaterally symmetrical. They have an anterior, a head, a posterior, a tail. They have a ventral surface, which is your stomach, if you will, and a dorsal surface, which is the back. So no matter where you look in this phylogenetic tree for these protostomes and deuterostomes, once you move out here into these outgroups, these much earlier branching, the cnidaria, um, 
which are your corals and your sponges, they're much deeper branching than herb bilateria. But no matter where you look here, these are all bilaterally symmetrical. You may say the echinoderms, things like starfish and sea urchins, aren't bilaterally symmetrical, but their larval stage actually is. Their adult stage isn't. But all those organisms are bilaterally symmetrical. And so from that, we can conclude that the last common ancestor of both protostomes and deuterostomes was also bilaterally symmetrical. Okay, that's just based on morphological characteristics, and we're not really that interested in that. We want to know what DNA can tell us. So what did herb bilateria look like? Well, let's first talk about body patterning and how it patterned its body. And again, we're looking at an organism that lived 600 million years ago. So let's see what we can find out about its genetic makeup. Drosophila, otherwise known as a fruit fly, um, has been a, a workhorse for uh, genetics and understanding developmental programs and organisms. And dating back to 1915, they'd identified these spontaneous mutants of Drosophila that had four wings. So this is a wild-type Drosophila, and you can see that, um, just to remind you about your insect uh, anatomy, they have a head, they have three thoracic segments, so a T1, a T2, and a T3, and then they have eight abdominal segments. Normally on a fly, the second thoracic segment, or T2, has wings, and on the third thoracic segment, you have these halteres, or what they're called, and they're here and here. They're sort of balancing organ organs. They provide stability during flight for flies. So if you looked at a house fly or something, it would have this morphology. So they isolated these bithorax mutants, which have wings on both the T2 and the T3, the third thoracic segment. So essentially this halteer has been changed into a full wing. And you can see that the wing is morphologically identical to the, the T3 wing is actually morphologically identical to the T2 wing. And in fact, if this image was a little better, you could see the structure on the back here is actually the same. It's like, it's like the T2 segment has been repeated. Okay, so you have, uh, on the third thoracic segment, it has another pair of wings. And when they continued to screen for these mutations, they found all sorts of bizarre things happening. And these, by the way, are just single gene mutations. Okay, just knocking out a single gene. This mutation is called antennapedia. Normally, on the wild-type fly, their head there, they have antenna. You can see those here in the wild-type fly. Antennapedia mutants have legs growing out where the antenna should be. So a single mutation, a single gene, single protein disrupted, completely transforms um, a structure on the fly to something else. It's really quite startling when you think about it. Just a single change, and you can completely reprogram the insect. So these were obviously the source of a lot of investigation because these mutations really fascinated people. Um, and what was really intriguing, again, is that a single gene mutation can change an entire developmental program. And these genes were called uh, homeotic mutations or homeotic genes. And uh, homeotic gets its name Greek, homeos meaning same or similar. 
So these homeotic mutants transform the fly or transform segments from one type on the fly to another. So they did a systematic screen to try and identify these homeotic genes. And what they identified were a whole series of homeotic genes, eight in Drosophila. And they're shown here, okay, in two clusters. So there's an antennapedia complex and a bithorax complex. And these were referred to as Hox genes. And each of those Hox genes I showed you, they're a much larger gene, but within them they, can, they contain um, a homeobox sequence, which is 180 nucleotides. And you'll know that 180 nucleotides would encode for a 60 amino acid protein. So you can imagine a large protein, and within it there's a 60 amino acid stretch, okay, known as the homeodomain. And the homeodomain is responsible for binding DNA. So Hox genes are transcription factors. They bind to DNA, and they turn on or they turn off genes. Okay, so you can imagine a large gene which encodes a protein. Within that protein, there's a small region, 60 amino acids, and that is a homeodomain which binds DNA and regulates transcription of genes. So it'll turn some on, it'll turn some off. And so there are these eight homeotic genes, or Hox genes, that were identified in Drosophila. And what was even more strange was that the Hox genes were actually uh, expressed in the same order on the chromosome as they were expressed in the embryo in an anterior to posterior fashion. So if you look here, uh, labial, which is expressed at the very um, anterior end of the fly embryo. So the fly embryo actually, here's the head, and then it wraps around here, and there's the tail, is what the, how Drosophila embryos look. So you can see labial is present here at the very anterior end, and it codes these red structures of the head. Then as you move back, you get, um, so you go to deformed here, which forms this mouth part. Then you move into the T1, which is sex combs reduced. T2 is antennapedia. Ultra bithorax is T3. And then you have abdominal A and abdominal B in the, as you move towards the posterior end of the fly. So what was really startling was that you had these Hox genes. Each one was present in one or a few segments within the, in the developing fly and that the order that they appeared on the chromosome was the same order, same spatial order that they were expressed in the embryo in an anterior to posterior fashion. And this phenomenon was known as collinearity. So the order that the genes are present on the chromosome is the same order that they're expressed in an anterior to posterior fashion in the embryo. Okay. And so that, that bithorax mutant, that mutant in Drosophila that had uh, two wings, is actually a mutation in ultrabithorax, or UBX. So that gene is lost, and the fly produces a second set of wings. So these are key regulators of development. And in Walter Gehring's lab, Bill McGinnis and Mike Levine, after the discovery of Hox genes, they said, well, maybe we can look and see whether or not Hox genes are expressed in any other animals. Right? And so they thought they might find it in, in, in worms, annelids, which are related to insects. 
Uh, they tried all sorts of things. And what they found, in fact, was that Hox genes were, were present in bugs, earthworms, frogs, cows, and even humans. So Hox genes weren't present just in insects, but in fact they were present in, in all animals that they looked at. And even more interesting, they preserved the collinear aspect of, of, their, of, the, uh, of their order on the chromosome. So in mice, for example, there turns out to be four Hox clusters. So this is a region of the chromosome that contains Hox genes. And you can see here the, um, the different Hox genes in Drosophila. And it's homolog, or it's relative in mouse. And you can see that the arrangement on the chromosome is preserved in mice and in Drosophila. And even more than that, the expression patterns are conserved. So if you look, now this slide is reversed, uh, so this would be the, um, the, from the last slide. Uh, but the labial homolog here is present at the anterior end of the mouse. So here's the mouse embryo with its head moving out towards its tail. And the Hox genes, their order that they're present on the chromosome corresponds to the order in which they're expressed in an anterior to posterior fashion in the mouse and in Drosophila. And it's the same genes, the same order. Okay. So the, 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 the mouse has homologs of each of the Drosophila genes. They're in the exact same order on the chromosome. And they're expressed in the exact same way. And they actually do the same thing. They specify uh, identity within the embryo. They, they determine the anterior region versus the posterior region of the embryo. So both mouse and, and Drosophila and humans and any other animal you look at has Hox genes. They're expressed collinearly on a chromosome such that the order of the Hox genes on the chromosome matches up with the expression in an anterior to posterior fashion in the embryo. doesn't matter what you look at, whether it's a chicken, whether it's a crustacean, whether it's a worm, that holds true for all animals. The important thing to remember about Hox genes, or to point out, is that Hox genes don't create a wing, for example, here. What Hox genes do is they specify positional information within the embryo. So what Hox genes do is they say, this is T3. The embryo then knows T3 make a halt here. Hox genes tell the embryo, this segment is T2, make wings. So if the Hox genes aren't expressed properly, and this segment here gets the signal that it's T2, then the genetic program will go and make wings there. Okay? So Hox genes don't create wings, they don't create antenna, they don't create legs. What they do is they specify positional information, which then other genes respond to to activate or repress gene expression. Okay? So you can imagine that a Hox gene gets turned on in T3. And what does that Hox gene do? Well, it activates this gene, it represses this gene, this gene, and this gene, and it activates these three genes. So it, it's a transcription factor, it modulates expression of genes, and it tells the organism positional information. It does that both in the fruit fly, in mice, and in humans. 
So what that tells us then is that the last common ancestor, yeah, if you look at vertebrates here, and if you look at insects down here, they both contain that cluster of Hox genes. Okay, that same eight Hox genes on a single piece of DNA that specify positional information and is collinear. And the last time that this group and this group shared a common ancestor was right here. Okay, Urbilateria. So what we know then is that um, there are eight to ten Hox genes and that they probably, well, they did exist in the last common ancestor of both flies and humans, or mice if you want. That's the most likely explanation for that. Otherwise, you have to invent those genes independently, get them all in the same order, doing the exact same thing on the chromosome. And they have to be very similar. So uh, SCR, sex comb reduced in Drosophila, is very similar to sex combs reduced in mice. Okay, so it's essentially the same gene that's been diverging for 600 million years. And I think the most startling thing to come out of this was the fact that up until this point, nobody would have said, oh, a fruit fly and a human use the same genes to develop. They're just dramatically different organisms, and yet the findings from this, and what you'll start to see as we build on this, in fact, is that organisms use the exact same toolkit to, to, to uh, go through development. Okay? It's really not the genes, but it's the genes and what, the timing of expression and, and some of the genes that they interact with that create all the patterns that we see today. So the complexity of an organism, whether it's a Drosophila or a human, doesn't necessarily come from the genes that it has, but the way it uses those genes. And again, the most startling thing to come out of this is in fact that fruit flies and humans are built using the same toolkit. So we share a lot of Hox genes, we share Hox genes with flies, but humans and flies really can't be that similar, right? So what we're going to do now is continue on trying to understand that Urbilateria, that last common ancestor of all protostomes and deuterostomes. And it seems like every lecture we come back to eyes in some form or another. And what we're going to do today is to talk a little bit about how, how eyes are formed. And if you'd asked somebody about 20 years ago, they would have said that eyes evolved independently about 40 times. So there's no way that this structure here, and this is a Drosophila eye, compound eye, and a human eye here, there's no way these two structures could in any way be related. The Drosophila eyes are, are really cool. They're, they're sort of beautiful geometric structures with these little, they're called omatidias and little hairs, and you'll see some close-ups of them in a, in a little while. We've already dealt with the, the, the human eye to some extent. And now we want to ask the question, well, are these two related at all? And this work uh, that I'm talking about now came again out of Walter Gehring's lab. And remember, Gehring was the one who uh, did some of the early work on Hox genes. Here's a wild-type Drosophila eye, compound eye here. And they found a mutant called Eyeless. And what Eyeless does is in mutants of these flies, they lack an eye. So where an eye should be, there is no eye. So Eyeless is involved in formation of an eye in Drosophila. 
It turned out that there was a gene in humans, and so Gehring's group actually isolated this ILIS gene. And when they, they isolated that gene, they started to say, okay, what's this gene look like? And one of the things they found was it looked like a gene in humans that had been identified to cause eye defects called aniridia. And this is a minor defect of someone with aniridia, and uh, they basically lack an iris. And so here's the, the mutant form of the eye, and you can see that there's no, no center iris to this eye. And even more severe mutations in aniridia uh, cause even more dramatic defects in eye development. So this gene eyeless that they identified in flies when they sequenced it and said, okay, what's it look like? Well, it looks like this gene in humans called aniridia, and it looked like another gene that was identified in mice called small eye. And here's a wild-type mouse with the eye right here, and in mutants that, that lack small eye, uh, they lack the eyes reduced or eliminated in those mice. Eyeless, aniridia, and small eye are all the same gene. Okay? They have different names uh, because they were identified independently. So eyeless was identified years ago in a screen and just given a name, and it took years before they were able to identify the gene. When they did, it turned out to be the same as the aniridia gene in humans and the same as the small eye gene that was found in mice. So it's interesting that we have three genes, Drosophila, mice, and humans, and it's all connected to eye development. And so the idea is that why would a single, why would the eyeless gene, or homologs of it as they're called, so copies of it in other organisms, what role do, does this gene play in eye development, and is it conserved among, again, all protostomes and deuterostomes, because we know the last common ancestor of insects and humans or vertebrae is that herbilateria that lived 600 million years ago. So what Gehring's group did is they said, okay, well, we've got this gene, eyeless, and we know that if we mutate it, we knock out eyes. So we don't make the Drosophila doesn't have eyes. So what happens if we express the gene somewhere else on the fly? And that's called ectopically expressing it, so expressing it somewhere where it doesn't belong. So they did that. They put it on the legs. They put it on different parts of the head. And what they found is that when it, wherever they expressed eyeless now, the wild-type copy, so if you express it on the leg, what you do is you produce an eye on the leg. And these are fun... Well, I don't know if they can actually see but the eye has the morphological structure of a proper eye, and it's even innervated, so it has nerves going to it. You can sort of see that here. Um, here's the wild-type eye here, and this is a close-up. You can see the, these are the omatidia, they're called, and there are little bristles or hairs that stick up. And this is an ectopic eye produced by ex misexpressing eyeless right near it. And again, you can see it's got these nice omatidia. You can see perhaps some of the hairs. This one here, here's the wild type eye. Here's the mutant eye. It's more on the back of this fly. And again, you can see the bristles now here very clearly. Again, the omatidia. It's colored red like the eye of Drosophila. So they could take this eyeless gene, and if you knock it out, you don't make eyes. And you can express it all over the place in Drosophila, and you can make eyes all over the bug. 
Well, I told you that when they originally identified Eilis, the gene, and they went and they looked in, in mice and in humans, they found this human version of, of this Drosophila gene. So then what they said was, okay, if we express Eilis in Drosophila on its leg, we can put an eye on the leg of a Drosophila. What happens if we take these Eilis homologs, copies of this gene that were isolated from other organisms, and we express that in Drosophila? And many of you know that, that squid and, and uh, octopi have very unique eyes. So they took the eyeless gene from a squid, and they took the small eye gene from mouse, mice, and they topically, so they put that into Drosophila, and then they said, does it make an eye? And in fact, it does. Again, here's the eyeless gene from a squid expressed in Drosophila. You can see the omatidia, those, those sort of ball-like structures. You can see the hairs. It's not as well organized. This is small eye, so from a mouse. Taking a mouse gene and just putting that into a fruit fly, and you make eyes wherever you express it. And you can see the omatidia, you can see the hairs here that are part of the eye. Even though mice and Drosophila have been diverging for 600 million years, this gene, and to kind of unify the name, they call it PAC6 now, because it gets confusing when you have sort of three names for the same gene. So you can take a PAC6 gene from a mouse and put it into a fruit fly, and you will get eyes forming. So they're all members of this PAC6 family. So you could argue that it's a coincidence that the PAC6 gene was used in, in, in squid, in mouse, in humans, in fruit flies to create a light-sensing organ or an eye. Or it could be that PAC6 was in an ancestral organism that had a light-sensing organ that was encoded by PAC6, whether it was an eye or just some sort of photocell. But the most likely explanation is that the last common ancestor of mice and fruit flies had a light-sensing organ that was encoded by PAC6. And that's why no matter where you look in eye development, eye development always begins with a PAC6 molecule. Again, we're thinking about that herb bilateria. We know it must have had Hox genes and that the Hox genes were responsible for coding the anterior and posterior uh, identity of the segments within that organism. We know it probably had a light sensing organ that was encoded by PAC6. What else do we know? I'll give you some more terminology. Um, okay, so you have a distal end and a proximal end, and the distal end is the furthest part away from the body. So on any structure, whether it's an arm, a leg, an antenna, a wing, they all have a distal surface or a distal end and a proximal end. There's a gene called distalis. And what distalis is, is it's present at the distal end of outgrowths on bodies. So if we look at protostomes, we've got here, this is called an onychophora. It's a velvet worm. Or it's part of the lobopodia family, and it's kind of at this end of the protostome family. You can see it's got all these little legs, these nice antennae. What you can do is you can take embryos of the sonicophrin and you can stain it to light up certain proteins. Okay? 
In this case, we stain it so that the distalis gene, which is in green, in this case, lights up. And what you notice here is that all the leg segments and the antenna segments light up with distalis. Distalis is present in the distal tips of the outgrowths on that body, so the limbs, the antenna. This is a butterfly. Uh, distalis here is in blue. And what you see here is a caterpillar, and it's got uh, three, sets of, uh, three pairs of legs on the T1, T2, and T3 segment. If you look up here, you can see that distalis in blue is staining these distal outgrowths. So here are the limbs, the one, the two, the three pairs. Those are the mouth parts up there um, that are staining with distalis. So where you have distal outgrowths on the body, distalis is expressed in protostomes. It's also expressed in deuterostomes. So here's a sea urchin embryo, which is an echinoderm, which lies uh, right here on the, on the deuterostome tree. And when you look at the larva, the larva of uh, sea urchins have projections that come out, and those projections all stain with distalis. When you look at a mouse limb, um, so right up, right, so there's the head of the mouse, wraps around to the tail. Uh, there's the forelimb, so that's the structure that will give rise to the forelimbs of the mice. And that forelimb stains positive for distalis. So whether you're a protostome or a deuterostome, distalis expression is found on outgrowths along the body. So whenever you have an outgrowth, you have distalis expression. Final one, heart development. There's a mutant in Drosophila called Tin Man, for obvi maybe obvious reasons. Um, and Drosophila have a really simple heart. They basically have a long tube and then a muscle at one end up here. And in brown, you have Tin Man staining of this Drosophila embryo. The head would be there, the tail would be here, and the heart lies across the top there. In a mutant of Tin Man, you lack a heart. So Tin Man mutants in Drosophila have no heart and obviously don't survive. Tin Man is also responsible for heart development in mice. And these are stainings looking at Tin Man in a variety of, of organisms. Again, Drosophila with the heart, it's basically a long tube with a pump at one end. This is Xenopus, which is a frog. And you can see Tin Man staining in purple here, lighting up the heart. This is zebrafish, a fish. Can't really see it very well, but the head is here, wraps around to the tail here. This is sort of the yolk sac in here. And you can see Tin Man expression here where the heart forms. Again, whether you're a fruit fly or a mouse, distalis marks distal outgrowths. Whether you're a Drosophila or a vertebrate, like a, a frog or a fish, and even mice, I didn't have an image of it, a Tin Man is involved in heart development. So these genes that we've been talking about, Distalis, Pax6, um, Tin Man, and the Hox genes, they all contain homeodomains, so they all bind to DNA. They don't contain the same homeodomain but they contain a homeodomain that binds to DNA and regulates expression of other genes. Okay? So what they do is they, when they become activated, 
They turn on, for example, PAC6. When it becomes active, expressed, it turns on eye development. So it turns on genes that create an eye. Okay? So if you express uh, PAC6 somewhere in a Drosophila, you create an eye program and an eye forms. So one of the, the most interesting things, really, is that whether you're over here on the tree in insects or whether you're over here with vertebrates, the last time these two organisms shared a common ancestor was right here, 600 million years ago. So what I want to get across today is the fact that looking at the DNA in your body can tell us, and looking at DNA from other organisms, can tell us a lot about how organisms develop and it can tell us a little bit about how they change. And from this really simple analysis, and you can go on and do this for a whole range of genes, but from this really uh, simple analysis, we can infer that this last common ancestor of both insects and, and humans, but it really applies to any of these organisms here, contained a cluster of Hox genes that were collinearly expressed, contained a light-sensing organ, that was encoded by PAC6. It had a heart that was controlled by a gene called Tin Man, and it had outgrowths along its body that was controlled by a gene called Distillus. And based on that, what our Herbilateria might have looked like might have been something like that. Just an artistic rendition. Um, but here we've got a nice little bilaterally symmetrical organism. Got a little heart in here light-sensing organs. It's got uh, extensions or protrusions out of it that would have been controlled by distillus. And again, it's, it's, its overall body organization, its segmented nature would have been controlled by Hox genes. And so we can sort of, this is all just make-believe this part, but the idea is that those are the types of genes and the characteristics of that organism that must have lived about 600 million years ago that provided the genetic program for modern-day organisms. So what I wanted to show you in the first part of this lecture was how we can use, how understanding development and the processes that happen in different organisms can tell us a lot about, A, not only that common ancestor, but understanding how development works in Drosophila really has a direct connection to how development works in things like humans. And so understanding model organisms like that not only tells us about how a fruit fly develops, but it tells us how, you know, what to look for in human development. Now, what I emphasized in the first part, in the first part of this talk was really how similar organisms are from fruit flies to humans. We use the same sorts of genes to pattern the embryo. What I want to focus on in the next section is, well, how do you create those differences? So obviously we're dramatically different than a fruit fly. How do we get that way? So how are those differences created? And so how are body plans, once you create a program, how do you create change within that program to alter the structures? Okay, and so that's what I'm going to talk about today and next week. And what I'm going to use as an example are how insect wings evolved. Then we're going to look at how insect wings change and how we can create novelties or new structures on wings. 
And so those are sort of some of the themes that we'll uh, go through in today and uh, next week's lecture. So how did insect wings evolve? So based on comparative morphology, there was one hypothesis that insect wings were derived from a, basically a crustacean gill. So crustaceans have a multi, some crustaceans have a multi-branched appendage, okay, which includes uh, the endopod, which is the actual leg, uh, the exopod, and this epipod here, which is oftentimes the gill structure. And just to orient you, and I know this slide doesn't come out very well, um, but you'll see here a branch in the tree. You have crustaceans here. You have myriapods here, which are like uh, millipedes, centipedes. And then you have the insecta here. And myriapods and crustaceans don't have wings. Uh, insects do. And so where did those wings come from in insects? And the story was that there's a debate as to where the wings came from. What structure gave rise to an insect wing? Where did that come from? How did it evolve? And one hypothesis was it was the epipod on the, wing, on the uh, crustacean limb that expanded to become the wings on insects. And the idea is that, well, this epipod, which is originally part of the limb itself, at some point may have fused with the body wall and then migrated dorsally towards the back of the, of the insect to create that wing happening there. So we have the idea that, in, that the insect wing, that, that the wing is derived from the epipod. So how do we test that? Well, we can look at the genes that are expressed in the epipod and the genes that are expressed in the wing and see whether or not the same genes are turned on. If they are, that might suggest from a genetic standpoint that there's not only some morphological evidence to suggest that the epipod was converted to the wing, but there's also some genetic and molecular data to suggest that. So is the insect wing related to the crustacean limb? And I like to show this, because this is for me one of the most uh, eye-opening examples I don't know if you know this, if you've seen these pill bugs or sow bugs, if you lift up a log or a stone, but these are actually crustaceans, they're not insects. They're, as far as I know, the only terrestrial crustacean, the only crustacean that lives on land. So all the other crustaceans, shrimp, lobster, all those fun things are aquatic, uh, but this little guy, he, it's an isopod, and it's, it's a crustacean, not an insect. So just a little piece of trivia. If you're ever out there, you can impress your friends. Uh, just look at the underside. It's not an insect body. It's actually a crustacean body. So the question then becomes, do we see the same genes turned on in the wing as we do in the epipod? So if we can find wing-specific genes, are they restricted to the epipod? That would suggest that these two structures are genetically related to each other. So my next little piece of natural history um, is, do you know where wings come from on insects? I use this example because everybody's familiar with caterpillars, and probably in grade three or, or earlier, you know that caterpillars eat food. They then pupate, and during that pupal stage, all the adult structures form, and out of that pupal case emerges this beautiful butterfly with its spectacularly color-patterned wings. Where they come from? The wings 
And actually, all the structures that you see on an adult insect come from structures that grow not in the pupil stage, although they expand greatly in the pupil stage, but during the larval stage. And these groups of cells are set aside very early in development, and they grow inside the caterpillar until it pupates, and then those structures become the adult structures that you see when it emerges. So in Drosophila here, this nasty little guy, um, if you were to look at the larval stage, you would see little groups of cells set aside, and they're imaginal disks, and here's a wing imaginal disk, uh, that's the halter, and this is a leg imaginal disk. And so they're tucked away, little groups of cells, all the head structures as well have little groups of cells, and they grow inside the caterpillar. The leg is actually kind of cool. You see it's sort of a series of concentric circles. It's actually a flat disk, and what happens when it pupates is it extends out like pulling out an antenna on an old radio, for example. So it just sort of pops out and creates the leg on a uh, Drosophila, for example. But growing inside the caterpillar are these structures known as imaginal disks, and they're what give rise to the adult structures on the embryo, or on the, on the, uh, on the adult. So in case you don't believe me, um, here's a caterpillar. This is actually a... Um, Buckeye butterfly caterpillar, not a monarch. Um, to orient you, again, there are three thoracic segments, so T1, the T2, and the T3 set of legs. T2 and T3 are where the forewing and the hindwing are in butterflies. And if you, do a, if you ever take a caterpillar, and I don't recommend you do this, but if you do, make a lateral incision in either the T3 or the T2 segment, out will pop the wing disc. And so you can see that here. We made a cut, and you can see the wing disc here. And this doesn't show up very well, but you can, there's wing veins here, which actually mimic the wing veins. And this will be the hind wing of the butterfly. If you were to cut here, the forewing would pop out. So inside every butterfly is a little wing that's growing. And this is a butterfly that's fairly, uh, caterpillar that's fairly close to pupating. Um, so this is fairly close to an adult wing disc. And then during the pupil stage, this will expand greatly. The color patterns will come in, and you'll create the structures on the adult butterfly wing. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week, I think. But inside every insect, and so you have structures like this that are growing inside the head that will give rise to the antenna, the mouth parts, the structures in here that will be giving rise to the legs. So they're set aside actually very early on in development, and they continue to grow inside the caterpillar. So they take those uh, Drosophila larvae, they cut out those wing discs, and then they stain them again using markers that, that, that recognize specific proteins. Okay, so here's the wing disc here, for example. And they stained, um, there are two markers that are specific for wings in Drosophila. One is a gene called PDM. It doesn't really matter what it does. And that's stained in green. And so you can see the wing disc here. And in green, this area here, which gives rise to the wing on the wing disc, stains positive for PDM. Here's a wing disc. Here you can see the disc. This is what will actually give rise to the wing itself. These are the connections to the body. This is stained with three different colored, three different markers for three different genes. 
um, including our, our gene Apteris. And Apteris is red, and it's expressed here. The other colors kind of confuse it a bit, but this is the red staining here. So you see it stains actually about half of the wing pouch, it's called here. So Apteris and PDM are two genes that mark wings only in Drosophila, not expressed anywhere else. So the next question is, where are Apteris and PDM expressed in crustaceans? Um, this is brine shrimp or artemia. Have you ever gone to sort of a novelty store? These are also known as sea monkeys. So if you get those things and you put them in water and it's instant life, those are brine shrimp. It's a crustacean. And this is what its limb looks like. And when they stained artemia limbs for, which one is this? Apteris. What you can see, here's the... Um, endopod, the exopod, and the epipod, and the epipod stains for Apteris, okay? but not the exopod or the endopod. Okay, so in crustaceans, the epipod stains for Apteris. In Drosophila, the wing stains for Apteris. But none of these other structures stain for Apteris. If we look at PDM in the gills of crayfish, again, you've got um, your leg here, your exopod, and your epipod, which is the gill. And the gill or the epipod stains for a PDM. So what that suggests then is that the, the genes that are expressed specifically in the wing of Drosophila or insects are the same genes that are expressed specifically in the epipod of crustaceans. It suggests that those two structures may not be, may be more than just morphologically similar, they may be uh, genetically similar in terms of their programming. And it's possible then that crustaceans, and that this branched appendage, that these epipods, uh, again, may have fused with the body wall, migrated more dorsally, and given rise to the wings that we see on Drosophila. So what we're seeing then are how new structures are being created using um, the, existing, the existing structures that are there. So structures become modified. But again, the genetics still are telling us that these structures are related. But again, insect wings, and wings were a huge innovation for insects. Insects are probably the most successful species on Earth in terms of numbers and diversity. And part of that reason is the innovation of flight. And so flight was a huge innovation and driving force for insects. And so we can see a little bit about how these structures are created. One of the interesting things about design, and I'll go back and talk about this again next week, um, but we've already seen how maybe new structures can be created, how insect wings may have evolved from a branched appendage. One of the unique things about animal design, and again, it's no matter where you look, is the fact that animals are built on repeated units. Okay, so I've got here, uh, this is a myriapod, a millipede, and you can see it's got each of these segments has a pair of legs on it. So you've got these repeating structures. Right, and this segment here looks the same as this segment and so on. 
Even vertebrates are composed of repeating units. You see these uh, vertebrae here, and a snake is a dramatic example of that. But that organisms are based or built on repeating units or repeating structures. Serial homologs are basically the same structure. What happens is each of these limbs here, these segments, is a serial homolog of each other. Okay? So it's basically, or each of these vertebrae are serial homologs of each other. It's taking a structure and repeating it. So you create a set of legs, and then you repeat it on all segments of the body. And so now they may not look like legs, but they were all derived from an ancestral set of legs. So let me give you an example. Here's a crustacean, a crayfish. Okay? It's got claws, it's got legs, it's got swimmerettes. At some point, these were all legs, all the same structure. What happens during evolution is that these structures change, and they become differentiated to do specific things. So having legs on every segment of the body at first may seem like a great idea if you're a millipede or something. But what happens is once you have serial homologs, so this leg is a serial homolog of that leg. Okay. What happens, though, is that once you, you create these serial homologs, they're not, they're each, because the design is modular, each group is independent from the other segments, which means that you can get changes occurring in specialization in these segments. So whereas this organism probably began as life with a series of legs on every segment, this set of legs became specialized for claws, for defense. These legs retained their walking ability. These legs down here became swimmerettes, which allowed the uh, crayfish to, uh, to jet through the water. And so that's what happens with serial homologs. You get repetition of those homologs, and then you alter them. You create new structures from them. And that's how new structures arise. And the nice thing about having a modular design is that you can decouple the processes that are happening in each segment. Okay, so we've got a bat here. You know, our forelimbs and hind limbs are related structures. Okay, but because we're a modular design, we can alter our, our forearms without altering our, our, our legs. That's why a bat can alter its forearms into, into wings while retaining legs at its back. Because what happens is you get same structures appearing on different segments of the body, but because those segments are independent of each other, they can then differentiate into new structures. Again, thinking about insect wings, um, primitive insects have four wings, so things like dragonflies are the most primitive of insects. Uh, but in the case of flies, they have only one pair of wings. The second pair of wings that used to be on T3 became haltiers. Okay? So forewing and hindwings are serial homologs of each other. And then once they're created, you can go on to change them. In this case of beetles or coleoptera, um, their forewings have been changed into these elytra, the hard shell. And their hindwings are what are used for flight. So once you create a structure, you can change it.
and duplicate it. 